Welcome to Ancient Words, Modern Message. I'm your host, Roger Womble. The past is a mirror, and the more we examine what came before us, the more we can understand where we are heading. While there is no certain answer regarding where the expression, it's lonely at the top, came from, we do know that the expression, the buck stops here, was a sign that President Harry S. Truman kept on his desk in the Oval Office. These are just two sayings having to do with leadership, but there are many, many more. It is sometimes said that in a certain nation at a certain time in history, there was a crisis in leadership. In late 8th century B.C. Israel, under King Ahaz, there was no crisis in leadership, but there was a desperate crisis in the right kind of leadership. It remained for his son, King Hezekiah, to begin his reign when the right kind of leadership would be displayed dramatically, along with its desirable results. We'll learn about that in this third episode in a six-part series called Not Perfect, But Good, Studies in the Life and Reign of King Hezekiah, an episode entitled Leading in the Right Direction. Thanks for joining us, and let's get right into it. We are going to be looking today at two portions of 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 31, and on the flip side, 2 Chronicles 32. As we continue to consider the life and reign of one of the kings of the southern kingdom, King Hezekiah, you know that the record and the account of the life and reign of Hezekiah is found in three portions of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, First of all, the account that we are considering primarily is found in the book of 2 Chronicles, but a parallel account with some additional information and details is found in the book of 2 Kings, and in fact, in the book of Isaiah, uh, there is also an account of events in the life of King Hezekiah. We don't know who it was, actually, who wrote the books of First and Second Chronicles. I should tell you that, uh, that actually in the Hebrew Bible, now you know that we in our Bible have 39 books of the Old Testament, but in the Hebrew Bible, there are only 24 books of the Old Testament. You might wonder, what have they left out? And the answer is nothing. It's just that they have grouped the books together in a different way. So in the Hebrew Bible, the books of 1st and 2nd Chronicles are not two books, but one book. And uh, also, the books of 1st and 2nd Kings are not two books, but one book. And so we don't know who the author Uh, of the books or book of Chronicles is. So we'll just refer to him as the chronicler, the chronicler. 
And thankfully, he, the chronicler, provides a four-chapter account, and that would be 2 Chronicles 29, 30, 31, and 32, a four-chapter account of the life and reign of King Hezekiah. Remember that Hezekiah was the 13th of 20 kings of the southern kingdom. When uh, Israel, the nation, divided after the death of King Solomon, a rebellion led by Jeroboam I, and from that time onward, there was a southern kingdom of Israel and a northern kingdom of Israel. Starting with Solomon's son, Rehoboam, there was a series of 20 different kings until the defeat of the southern kingdom at the hands of the Babylonians. 20 different kings. Interestingly, though none of the kings of the northern kingdom is identified as having been righteous or godly in any way, but just completely wicked, eight of the 20 kings of the southern kingdom are identified as having been good and godly kings. Actually, four of them are, are singled out as being even more godly than the other four of the eight who are identified as godly kings. And the the one who is identified as being the best of all of them is none other than King Hezekiah. If you're tired of using the name Hezekiah, or if you're looking for the name of a grandchild or a great-grandchild, and you decide to go with Hezekiah, you might want to use the simpler name Zeke. So if you want, we can call him simply Zeke. But if you don't mind, I'll still talk about King Hezekiah, the 13th of 20 kings of the southern kingdom. And the emphasis by the chronicler in his account, which is 2 Chronicles 29 through 32, the emphasis of his account is upon uh, the, the amazing and dramatic spiritual revival that was ignited by this man, Zeke, if you want to call him that, Hezekiah, a godly leader, who was the son of a wicked man, a wicked king before him. And that really is the emphasis of the chronicler's account of King Hezekiah. Now, if you go to the book of 2 Kings, the parallel passage, you'll find that the emphasis of that has to do more with the military exploits of Hezekiah. But the chronicler's account zeroes in on the spiritual status and influence and impact of King Hezekiah. We actually considered two weeks ago uh, chapter 30 of 2 Chronicles, and you'll remember that 2 Chronicles chapter 30 tells us uh, that there was a mountaintop experience uh, of the Jewish people under Hezekiah's leadership and as a result of his godly influence. And that mountaintop experience was the reinstatement of the Passover and the observance of the Passover, which had been neglected by wicked King Ahaz, Hezekiah's father. But now Hezekiah comes onto the scene and he reinstitutes the Passover, which is a week-long observance. And remember, we read that it was such a spiritual high for uh, the, the Jews of the southern kingdom, and remember, even the Jews of the northern kingdom were invited to participate. It was such a spiritual high that they decided to continue it for another week. And so it was a two-week 
mountaintop experience enjoyed by the Jews of the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. But now what we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 31, verse 1, is that that mountaintop experience spilled over into destroying the last vestiges of pagan worship. And those are items that had been initiated by Ahaz, Hezekiah's father. Look at the first verse of 2 Chronicles 31 on your page of text. And we find this. Now, when all this was finished, what is the all this? Well, the mountaintop experience of two weeks, Passover, one week, lasting two weeks. When all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and broke down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin. That would be the southern kingdom. But then we read, and in Ephraim and Manasseh, that would be the area in the north where those two tribes were settled. Incidentally, remember that before Hezekiah assumed the throne which was 716 BC, already the northern kingdom had been destroyed at the hands of the Assyrians in 722 BC. But there are still Jews living in the land. And remember that Hezekiah invited them to participate in the Passover observance. And so now we, we read that, uh, that they actually decided, all of them, to destroy the idols that were all throughout the land including Ephraim and Manasseh, until they had destroyed them all. Then all the people of Israel returned to their cities, every man to his possession. Now, not only was that a demonstration of Hezekiah's determination to, to bring his nation back to God, but he went even further than that, because what he did was to, to reorganize and make provision for the restoration of temple worship in Jerusalem led by the Levites, Levitical worship. Remember that temple worship had fallen into absolute apathy under Ahaz, that basically the temple was shut down. There was no worship going on during Ahaz's reign. Now Hezekiah comes onto the scene and he makes all of these changes and provides spiritual godly leadership. And now he says, it's time for the people to get back to the temple and to worship. However, there's a problem. In order for there to be worship that was instituted and practiced, there had to be the Levites to lead in the worship. That was God's instruction. And they hadn't been working in leading temple worship for a long period of time. So the first thing that Hezekiah does in this situation is he organizes all the Levites, and then he makes sure that they have the necessary support in order to do their job in the temple. And so notice verse 2. Hezekiah appointed the divisions of the priests and of the Levites, division by division, each according to his service, the priests and the Levites for burnt offerings, these things to be offered in the temple, and peace offerings to minister in the gates of the camp of the Lord and to give thanks and praise. Remember that there was a system whereby groups of Levites would be on a schedule of service 
in the temple in Jerusalem. So they weren't full time. So at other times during the year, they would be doing other things. But then when their turn came around to serve in the temple, then they would show up in the temple, they would consecrate themselves, and they would do their service. So now what we read in verse two is Hezekiah says, okay, let's figure out who's to serve when, and let's get them back in an organized structure. And they are going to need support in order to do their job and in order to have the material that they need. So the thing we notice is that Hezekiah actually set the example for his own people. And that's verse three. The contribution of the king from his own possessions was for the burnt offerings, the burnt offerings of morning and evening, the burnt offerings for the Sabbaths, the new moons and the appointed feasts as it is written in the law of the Lord. So from his own possessions, Hezekiah said, I'll get this ball rolling. I'll get this started by giving what was necessary for the support of the Levites and the priests and for the sacrificial system. And then, no surprise, verses four and five, the people followed his example. So look at those two verses. He, that is Hezekiah, commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites that they, the priests and the Levites, might give themselves to the law of the Lord. So he gave the commandment. What was the response of the people? Remember, he set the example for them. Verse five, as soon as the command was spread abroad, the people of Israel gave in abundance the first fruits of grain and wine and oil and honey and of all the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. That's pretty impressive. Actually, what we read in verses six through 10 is that their giving was over the top. Over the top. Look at those verses, verse six. And the people of Israel and Judah who lived in the cities of Judah also brought in the tithe of cattle and sheep. So not only did they bring the tithe of grain and wine and oil and honey, but they brought in one-tenth of their cattle and their sheep and the tithe of the dedicated things that had been dedicated to the Lord their God, and they laid them in heaps. It's an interesting statement. It basically says they piled all the stuff up. The Hebrew word that's translated heaps there literally means a pile. And so everything that they brought in response to the instruction by King Hezekiah and his example, they started piling up in a certain area. Now that certain area appears to be outside of the temple. But so they bring them and lay them in heaps. In verse seven, in the third month, they began to pile up the heaps. So everything that they brought, you know, that was the, the grain, the wine, the oil, the honey, the sheep, the goats. I'm not sure how that worked, but they brought all that stuff. In the third month, they began to pile up the heaps and finish them in the seventh month. They continued to give for four months. I got this mental image, you know, of cows just being piled on top of each other, right? Uh, but, and then what was the response of Hezekiah when he saw the reaction of his people? Verse eight, when Hezekiah and the princes came and saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and his people Israel. Verse nine, and Hezekiah questioned the priests and the Levites about the heaps. What's all this stuff piled up out here? 
Azariah, the chief priest, who was of the house of Zadok, answered him, and this is what Azariah said, since they, the people, began to bring the contributions into the house of the Lord, we have eaten and had enough and have plenty left, for the Lord has blessed his people so that we have this large amount left. That's pretty impressive. And it had to be taken one step further. And that is, the giving was so over the top that they actually had to engage in warehouse expansion and management. Because, verses 11 through 19, verse 11, then Hezekiah commanded them to prepare chambers in the house of the Lord, in the temple, where they could put all this stuff. And they prepared them. And they faithfully brought in the contributions, the tithes, and the dedicated things. And then we read, the chief officer who was put in charge of the chambers in the temple where all of these gifts were to be placed. The chief officer was a man named Conaniah the Levite, and his brother Shimei was number two. And if you want to know why I've left out the following, uh, what is it, seven verses? It's because it's nothing but a list of names that you and I couldn't even pronounce, let alone remember. Yes, Barry. Yes, but, but in, that's fine. What it means is that their qualifications in to be priests and to serve in the temple had to be traced to their family background. So they had to actually be qualified to serve. There's maybe a practical reason for that. I'm not sure. But think about this. All of this support was going to be given to the priests and the Levites that the people were bringing. You can imagine there might have been some people who said, I'm, I'm a Levite. I want in on that. But they had to be able to demonstrate that according to their father's houses, they were in fact qualified to serve as Levites or to be ultimately descendants of Aaron, the high priest, to serve in the priesthood and the high priesthood. That's that's what I think that would be. Make sense? Yes, but it, it's, it's leaving out the mechanism. Yeah. It's, it doesn't state who is qualified to say this man is a Cohen or this man is a Levite. Yeah. Was it Hezekiah? Was it done by the secular authority? Or was it done by genealogical records? Which we do know that, that Israel was very good at keeping genealogical records. So it might have been that. Yeah. Good, good, good question. Um, now, let's look at verses 20 through 21 and see a summary of all of this. Hezekiah's godly service. Notice verse 20. Thus... Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. And every work that he, Hezekiah, undertook in the service of the house of God and in accordance with the law and the commandments seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. So the reign of Hezekiah was prosperous because he obeyed the Lord. That doesn't mean that when we obey the Lord, we're always going to prosper by the world's standards. Let no one tell you otherwise. Sam. Well, was, 
this verse here has it. Hezekiah in verse 2 appointed divisions of priests and Levites to visualize divisions each according to his service. Right. That's what you know the people. The same way in our church today, you, you become an elder, they check you out, they question you, they see your lifestyle. So I think Hezekiah, man of God, is a good. Well, I think that's true because he wanted to make sure. Remember, he's interested in the real deal in terms of the the spiritual life of Israel, and he doesn't want any phonies there. Absolutely. Uh, But when you read this and you say, oh, okay, so Hezekiah was doing the right thing, and we even just read that because he did everything uh, with all his heart and he prospered, that things were hunkadori from then on in. Flip your page over please. And the next thing you read is this, verse 1 of 2 Chronicles 32. After these things and these acts of faithfulness that we just have read about of King Hezekiah, what happens? Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. Uh, That's interesting because Hezekiah was doing the right thing, but the kingdom was still not immune to the threat of devastation at the hands of the dreaded Assyrians. Remember, the the rising power, the dominant power at this period of time was Assyria with their capital at Nineveh. And you remember that the Assyrians not too long before this had destroyed the northern kingdom. And now Sennacherib is finished with that, And now he moves his attention to the south, to Judah. We're going to be reading more about that in future studies. So, Hezekiah says, Sennacherib is coming. We need to be ready. So, we read in verses 2 through 6, a practical preparation led by Hezekiah to defend the city of Jerusalem in particular, but the southern kingdom. Verses 2 through 6. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem, he planned with his officers and his mighty men, interesting, to stop the water of the springs that were outside the city. And they helped him. A great many people were gathered, apparently, to help him in stopping the water of the springs that were outside the city. A great many people were gathered, and they stopped all the springs and the brook that flowed through the land, saying, why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? Outside of the walled city at that time in Hezekiah's, at this period in Hezekiah's reign, there was this wonderful natural spring that was on the eastern side of the city of David. It was called the Gihon Spring, G-I-H-O-N the Gihon Spring. The problem is that it was outside the wall of the city. So if Sennacherib launched an attack, a siege against the city of Jerusalem, the people are all going to be inside the wall and the water is going to be on the outside. And so that's why we read in verse four, why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? So you know what Hezekiah did? He gathered up people, And first of all, he actually expanded the wall to go around the Gihon Spring. So now it's not outside the city, now it's inside the city, but he took one step further. And that is, he actually 
launched what has to be considered one of the most amazing engineering projects. And that was he built a tunnel. And the tunnel was actually a way of, of diverting the water of the Gaihon Spring and running it through the tunnel so that it would run inside the city and the people could have access to the water in the city. Do you know what that tunnel was called? Hezekiah's Tunnel. <laughs> and that's what it is. It was an amazing feat. Actually, two groups started, one from each end, and for 1,752 feet, about a third of a mile, about 30 feet down, and they had to calculate exactly the pitch that would be necessary to bring the water into the city. And they started on two ends, and after a period of time, they met, and the account, you can read it in ancient texts, the account is tells us that the one group started hearing noises on the other side of the wall. And they tapped through, and they said, we miscalculated. And sure enough, they were about a foot off. But amazingly, they met in the middle. To this day, and some of you who have been to Israel have had the neat privilege of walking through Hezekiah's tunnel. Dean back here with his, with his wife, Lisa, is going to be traveling to Israel uh, in, at the end of October. We, we expect you to go through Hezekiah's tunnel and come back and tell us about it. It's really neat. Uh, you have to walk through. It is so narrow. Uh, there was a member of our tour group who was about six foot three. He could not stand up to go through the tunnel, tunnel at certain points. It is so narrow that you actually go through this way. And the water is sometimes ankle deep and other times it's knee deep. But you can go through it. And that was the preparation. Well, verse five goes on to say, he set the work resolutely and built up all the wall that was broken down, raised towers upon it. Outside it, he built another wall that might be a reference to the wall around the spring of Gihon. And he strengthened the Milo in the city of David. He also made weapons and shields in abundance. And he set combat commanders over the people and gathered them together to him in the square at the gate of the city and spoke encouragingly to them saying, now this is all part of the practical preparation for defense. Remember that old expression, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition? <laughs> well, this is pass the ammunition and praise the Lord. Because the last thing we see in verses 7 and 8 is the spiritual preparation for the defense of the city. Because this is what Hezekiah said to the commanders over the people when he gathered them together in the square of the gate of the city. This is what he said to them. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. In a future study, we're going to read how that all turned out. And it's pretty cool. But I want to leave you folks with a repetition of these words. The words of Hezekiah. Because I think we can apply them to our own lives 
as those who want to look to the Lord for the help that we need in the challenges that we face. I think if Hezekiah were standing here in front of us today and we were to ask him, what can we do about the things that trouble us and and the things that are frightening and the things that are scary? What would Hezekiah say? You know what I think he'd say to us? I think he'd say, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before anything that scares you. For those who are with you or he who is with you is more than any of that. Because all of that is of this world, the arm of the flesh. But we have the Lord our God with us to help us and to fight our battles. May it be so. Thanks for listening to Ancient Words, Modern Message. You can expect a new episode every other Monday, so please join us again. Ancient Words, Modern Message is supported by Hebrew Christian Fellowship. To learn more about our ministry or to ask a question, contact us at hcfellowship4819 at gmail.com. If you know someone who might be interested in this teaching, please share it with them. And please consider leaving a review of what you've heard on Apple Podcast. Your input helps us make our program even better and reach new listeners. All you have to do is open up the podcast app on your phone, look for Ancient Words, Modern Message, scroll down until you see Write a Review, and tell us what you think. Ancient Words, Modern Message is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. And I'm your host, Roger Womble reminding you that the Word of God is living and active. Until next time, showers of blessings on you and those you love.